Hey, and welcome to this short black episode of Take It Black. I'm Rachel Hocking. In this interview you're about to hear, I caught up with Haitian-American woman and writer Roxane Gay. She's probably best known for her works Bad Feminist, Hunger and Difficult Women, as well as writing for that Black Panther comic book series. Um, it actually took us a little while to line up this interview. Roxanne is based all the way over in Los Angeles and I'm in Sydney on Gadigal land. And the time difference is a bit tricky. I actually um, logged on to Zoom to have this yarn with Roxanne, but she'd mixed up the times and she was out running some errands. So she pulled over on the side of the road and did this interview from her car in LA. Uh, we talked about tearing down Confederate statues and which ones should be built in their place. Roxanne told me about uh, changing her thinking on abolition and why she now wants to reimagine a world with no police. So here's our yarn. It kicks off with Roxanne reflecting on the past month, the global Black Lives Matter movement we've seen and how she's been feeling about it all. You know, I, I don't know how to feel. Part of me wants to feel incredibly optimistic because so many people are actually finally talking about race in a really meaningful way. And people who have previously dismissed racial concerns are actually engaging in conversations. And I, when I say people, I mean white people, uh, because people of color have long had these conversations and have long understood the effects of systemic racism. And at the same time, it's hard to be optimistic because this is not the first time we've had this kind of reckoning, nor will it be the last. And so it's hard to know how sustained the effort is going to be. So I am I am trying to be optimistic, but I'm also being quite realistic. And I'm also just trying not to exhaust myself just because people want my opinion doesn't mean I have to give it. And so I am trying to be measured in terms of when I speak and when I choose to listen. And that's helping quite a lot. Do you remember where you were when you first heard about what had happened to George Floyd or saw his, uh, the video footage of his murder? Well, we're on lockdown pretty much here in California and have been for a while. And my wife and I are certainly just not spending that much time out of doors. I'm actually just running errands right now. Um, and uh, I was at home and in my, I think I was in my office and I was doing work. And I, I saw on Twitter, like that another black man had been murdered by the police and that there was video. And I told myself, I'm not going to watch it this time because I've seen enough black men murdered. And I had previously watched the video of Ahmaud Arbery. And so I, enough was enough. But when I saw that the video was eight minutes and 46 seconds, I think, in length, I thought, wait a minute, there can't possibly be eight entire minutes of something like this. And then it was. And so I did watch the video and, you know, it was just this one, they're, they're all horrifying, but this one, the sustained length of it, the, the indifference of the police officer as he like looked right into the camera, it really, um, it chilled me. Was there a particular moment when you started to think this one is different? And I don't just mean in terms of the death and, and, and the footage, but the, the global, the national response that we've seen. You know, I think it was the international response. People in countries all around the world were protesting and every single state in the United States had protests 
there were Mennonites protesting and they normally don't really engage with the secular world. And so to see the extent of the protests that people in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, which is not an incredibly diverse place, were protesting. And there were these thousands and thousands of people in the major cities uh, taking the risk despite the pandemic to get to the streets and hold police accountable for this. Uh, it, it, you know, it was, it was kind of like when early on in the Trump presidency, he tried to do a, the ban on uh, Muslim immigrants and Muslim people coming to the United States and people took to the airports and just said, no, this is not gonna happen. And it felt like that again. And it made me think, okay, we still have a little fight left in us. I want to read something that you wrote recently, which is really um, relatable to a lot of conversations I've been having with people in Australia. So uh, your most mm -hmm. recent New York Times article, you wrote, if you had asked me before George Floyd's killing, if I believed in police abolition, I would have said that reform is desperately needed, but the abolition was a bridge too far. And you go on to say that you lacked imagination, um, but you've changed your mind and you say, burn it all down and build something new in the ashes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk me through your change of thinking? What was going on for you back then and what has changed for you now? You know, I think previously, I just thought it's so overwhelming to imagine reforming an institution like the police because they just are so well established. They have practically impenetrable unions and just I cannot you know we just have been conditioned to to think that police are a necessary part of life and when you really think about it and you really start to do the reading on prison abolition and police abolition you start to realize that there are all kinds of systems that we could put in place to handle so much of what the police do and why not consider some of those alternatives? And so I just started to recognize that really it, it's, the issue wasn't with police abolition, it was with my imagination and, and this inability to really imagine true change. And I think part of it is because I was thinking about police reform. And as we can see, the police are just so corrupt. You cannot expect a corrupt system to reform itself. And so reform is not possible, but I do think some sort of revolution is possible, some sort of complete reimagining of police is possible. And, and I hope that we start to see something like that in, in cities all across the country and quite frankly, everywhere in the world, because as you know, like policing is a problem in Australia as well, uh, especially where black people are concerned and indigenous people are concerned. So, uh, you know, it's time to do something different doing something different uh, where you put a new system where old systems have been in place for a very long time um, is, is difficult. Do you think there is enough will in the community to get that kind of change right now? Is this the moment that most people have been waiting for? I don't think there's enough will yet, but I think we're at the beginning of that conversation and we are in a place where more people are open to it but I don't think we have enough people yet. It's still, I, I don't wanna say a fringe idea because humanity is not a fringe idea, but I, it is still something that a fraction of people are in support of. That said, far more people, especially in America, are on board with police abolition than I would have ever imagined a year ago. And so I'm deeply encouraged by that. 
yeah, it, it's something that I never thought I would hear some of my family right. members talk about. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's just blowing my mind. People I would have never guessed would care are really starting to say, wait, what is going on? And, and we're starting to put more scrutiny on police budgets. I, I live in Los Angeles and well, I split my time between Los Angeles and New York where my wife is and um, where she's from rather. And uh, you know, it's like the police budget here is I think $7 billion and more than half of our tax dollars go to the police. And as someone who pays quite a lot of taxes, that's infuriating. I want my money to go, I have no problem with taxes. Uh, I want them to go to education and social services and a safety net. I wanted to know from your perspective, I mean, we have this conversation every couple of years. We see the statues actually torn down. Why are there people out there who are still keen on protecting statues, which were built to honour, in many ways, murderers, uh, slave owners and traders? Why yes. are there still people who are set on protecting those statues? They're not protecting the statues. They're protecting their privilege. And when you dismantle the statues, you start to dismantle the systems that valorize those people in the first place. And right now, there is a certain segment of white people uh, that is terrified. They're terrified because they are worried that we will treat them the way they treated us. And so they want to hold on to what power they still have. I think they recognize that... <sighs> this is in many ways the last gasp of white supremacy uh and which is not to say that it's only old white people that are racist everyone is a little bit racist and young this, there's a, a young generation of incredibly racist people that were raised by these racist old white people so i mean they're just really worried about their place in the world and the power that they have and they do not want to relinquish it and no one has ever relinquished power like this peacefully and so it's you know they're going to be desperate and they're going to worry about their little stupid statues and we're going to keep tearing them down. In terms of the conversation around what we do with those statues, in Australia, um, you know, we, we have statues built to slave traders, we have statues built to people who did not discover this country but have been given credit for doing so. Mm. Uh, there, there is a conversation about altering them and, and, and having plaques next to them which gives the full history of who that person was and what their deeds were rather than taking them down. How do you feel about that move? You know, I'm open to it. I think the statues should just come down and we should erect statues instead of, for example, in Australia, the people who truly um, were in Australia well before some white people came along and were like, ah, yes, let's, let's make something here. Um, let's talk about uh, the indigenous people who deserve recognition and who are doing incredible work and have gone unrecognized and here in this country, it's the same. Let's talk, I, I don't care about people who own slaves. I wanna talk about enslaved people who thrived and accomplished things despite white supremacy and oppression. Uh, that's more interesting to me. But, you know, if statues have to stay up, I think history is important. I think it's important to understand the atrocities these people committed. And so, I, I, you know, I, I think that is a, an interesting alternative and it's not something that I would like, object to. My final question is just, I guess, um, for you in 10 years time, what will be the measure of how we meaningfully respond to this moment, which feels so different to other moments like this? You know, I think it will be if we see 
a completely different way of thinking about law enforcement and incarceration. And if we see a generation of children who do not know or who do not think of police as people who commit murder, when Black parents no longer have to give their children the talk uh, about how to engage with police, you know, if we create a generation of children who don't receive the talk, that will be the true measure for me, that we have done something with this moment. That was Roxanne Gay speaking to me, Rachel Hocking, for this short Black episode of Take It Black. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to stay deadly and always take it black. I will be, always have.